Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman and Candid West. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing why Japan has legalised the hacking of IoT devices, the new vulnerability in Apple's FaceTime that everyone's been talking about, a malicious browser extension that tries to steal cryptocurrencies, how one security researcher turned the tables on a spy, and a new variation on the business email compromise scam. But first, those of you who follow cybersecurity news may remember a law enforcement takedown in April of last year against the DDoS for Hire service WebStressor. WebStressor was at one point the world's largest DDoS for Hire service. Launched in 2015, it charged its users as little as $17 for access to the service. For its users, it made performing DDoS attacks against any website or server you wanted to target very simple. You didn't need any specialist technical knowledge or any infrastructure of your own. You simply paid your money to WebStressor and you could lease it out to perform your attack. So it's hardly surprising that in the three years it was operational, WebStressor racked up more than 151,000 registered users and was linked to more than 4 million DDoS attacks. That all ended last year, however, when in a series of coordinated police raids dubbed Operation Power Off, WebStressor administrators in the UK, Croatia, Canada and server Serbia were all arrested. Users of WebStressor may have lamented its loss, but thought no more of the takedown, until this, this week that is. That's because Europol has just announced that during the takedown operation last year, it acquired a trove of information about all of the website's users. It said that action was now underway worldwide to track down those users. So that means in the UK alone, a number of WebStressor's users have already been visited by the police, who seized 60 devices to them from them for analysis. British police said that over 250 users of other DDoS services will soon face action for the damage they have caused. That means there's a lot of people out there who may have used WebStressor to carry out DDoS attacks and thought they'd gotten away with it, who, someday soon, may be getting a knock on the door from the police. They may assume that law enforcement were only interested in the site's owners or operators, and as customers, they were probably safe enough. Now that assumption may prove to have been wrong. It's an interesting move on the part of Europol because it not only widens the investigation into WebStressor and brings more, potentially more culprits to justice, but also sends out a message to anyone considering using similar DDoS for hire services or indeed any other cybercrime service that even these service that even using these services could result in your arrest. So that may make some people think twice. Now, moving on from matters illegal to legal, um, because we heard that this week Japan will allow the government to hack uh, civilian IoT devices. Um, Candid, what's this about? Yeah, so last week Japan approved an amendment to a law that will actually allow government technicians to attack IoT devices of civilians. So, of course, all in the name of discovering vulnerable IoT devices and improving their security settings. So, don't worry, the government is not starting their own Mirai botnet. And the initiative is part of a plan to help prevent any IoT attack or cyber attack during the 2020 Olympic Games in uh, Tokyo. And the fear might actually be justified, because on one hand, we see thousands of attacks against our IoT honeypot every month. And we talked sure uh, about any or a lot of those cases in the podcast before. And on the other hand, such large events with an international media attention have always been a popular target for cyber attacks. 
be it for the publicity that a probably successful disrupting attack will probably gain, or just to settle a score on a doping scandal. I mean, just look, for example, at the 2018 Winter Olympic Games in South Korea, where a malware um, which was used in an attack actually disrupted part of the IT infrastructure of the event. Or if you go a little further back, 11 years ago during the Olympic Games in Beijing, the security team blocked more than 3,000 DDoS attacks and 216 attacks against their databases. Of course, beside that, they removed about 15,000 malware infestations from the event network. And also keep in mind, that was long before the Stuxnet era. So it definitely got worse since the last 10 years and they increased in intensity. So what exactly will these white hat government hackers do? Yeah, so the scans are performed by employees of the National Institute of Information and Communication Technology, the so-called NICT, and they will be supervised by the Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communications. So with the beginning of next week, they will try to attack exposed webcams and routers in Japan. And there should be roughly around 200 million of such devices uh, exposed. Apparently, they're only allowed to do dictionary attacks, so with default and weak passwords, against any exposed services such as Telnet or web consoles. And then if they successfully break into a device, this information will then be forwarded to the ISP, who can then contact the owner of the device in order to secure it and change the password. And of course, it will be interesting to see how successful this project will be. As I can imagine, not everyone will be able to secure their router on their own. And many users might even ignore the contact attempt from the ISP, uh, probably thinking that they want to sell a new service or something. Because this is exactly what happened here in Switzerland when owners of compromised websites were contacted by the ISP a few years ago and all of them uh, ignored it. So we'll see. So it's an interesting idea, but do you think the initiative will actually help prevent attacks? Yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, in the end, the scans they do are the same techniques used by IoT worms such as Mirai. And I guess a lot of those IoT devices have probably been probed by Mirai in the past. So securing these devices can definitely help prevent some of the future attacks. And I guess every little helps here, right? But make no mistake about it, there are millions of unsecure IoT devices around the world that could be used for similar attacks. So there is definitely no shortage of candidates for participating in a botnet. Also, although weak passwords are the number one infection vector for IoT devices, we have seen many vulnerability in routers in the last few years. Uh, for example, the Mirai worm uses 16 different exploits to compromise devices in some of the recent variants. Therefore, changing the password is important, but you should also ensure that the device will get updated automatically. But in all fairness, of course, this IoT security check is just one piece in the overall security plan for the Olympic Games. So we will definitely keep an eye on the developments around that Olympic Games. Okay, thanks. Now, it's been a week for big stories because um, probably one of the biggest cybersecurity stories of the year so far um, broke this week with the revelation that there was a flaw in Apple's FaceTime feature. Yeah, so this story broke um, earlier this week with a first reported by 9to5Mac, but then it quickly made headlines all over the world. So basically, a major bug in FaceTime and Apple iPhones 
allowed you to call anyone on FaceTime and immediately be able to hear the audio coming from their phone, so through their microphone, before the person on the other end has either accepted or rejected the incoming call. So for this to happen, a person simply needed to start a FaceTime call with someone in their contacts, then swipe up from the bottom and choose add person, then add their own phone number, which then automatically starts a group FaceTime with you and the person you originally called, even if they didn't accept the call. So you could then hear the audio um, of the person you called, even if they didn't answer, and they don't know that you can hear them either. So while on your screen, um, it will look like they have just joined the group chat and you can just hear the whatever sounds are coming through their microphone. On their side, the phone is still just ringing, you know, as normal. So they have no idea that um, anyone can hear the audio. And as well as that, 9to5Mac found that if the person um, who is being called presses the power button from the lock screen while the phone is ringing, and this has happened with the group chat, their video is then also sent to the caller, again, on, unbeknownst to them. They won't know that has happened either. Um, and reportedly, all iPhones that run iOS 12.1 or later are affected by these bugs. Um, now, the open microphone will cut out once the phone rings out or once the person, you know, rejects the phone call or whatever happens. So, I mean, it's not that you have permanent access to the microphone, but obviously, you know, it is a violation of people's privacy that things they're saying before answering the phone could be overheard. And obviously, you know, things maybe you don't want to hear could be heard as well. Um, so obviously this has caused huge controversy and um, with people clearly very concerned about their privacy. And of course, it is particularly embarrassing for Apple as they are a company that talk a lot about how important it is to them to protect users' privacy. And they even erected a billboard a few weeks ago at CES, you know, boasting about how great the privacy provided by iPhones is, which is maybe a move that they could regret now in light of this. Yeah, that wasn't a great timing, all right, you know. And sometimes the things you say before answering a call from people could be potentially embarrassing, yes, like I can't believe Bridget definitely. is calling me again. Exactly. So this is the situation as it stands. Um, has the bug been patched? So the bug hasn't been patched yet um, as of when we're recording this podcast, with Apple saying, though, that they will release a patch for it in, within a week, sometime this week. Um, however, in the meantime, they have disabled group FaceTime calls completely to mitigate the problem that way. So it should so it should be mitigated. It shouldn't be possible for people's, um, you know, microphones to be exposed in this way anymore. Um, but since the story broke as well, there have also been some additional developments with a mother and son from Arizona, um, Michelle Thompson and her 14-year-old son Grant, having come forward to say that they found this bug a week before the report in 9to5Mac went viral. So um, Miss Thompson says that her son discovered the eavesdropping bug on the 20th of January and that she did endeavour to contact Apple and she says she sent various letters and emails and tweets to them um, but that she hadn't heard a response. Um, she also posted a video on YouTube on the 25th of January um, that demonstrated the flaw. She said also that she registered as a developer um, even though she's actually not a developer at all, she's a lawyer. Um, in order to submit a bug report through Apple's support system, but she says she hadn't heard back um, when she went, went that route either. Now, I suppose to be fair to Apple, I suppose the 20th to the 28th is only the space of a few days, um, and obviously they get lots of reports and things like that too, so we won't hang about to dry too much about not getting back um, that promptly. But I suppose that the experience that the Thompsons had there does underline, I suppose, a flaw really 
uh, with the way kind of big technology companies kind of manage bug reports and things like this, even the ones that with bug bounty programs, because the way they accept bug reports, it can maybe be a bit overly complicated for, you know, members of the public who don't work in development or cybersecurity, um, you know, to do this. So it can maybe restrict their ability to submit bug reports, which, you know, as this case shows, it could be crucial. And it, of course, also does underline the fact that this bug was pretty easy to discover. Um, and for all, so for all anyone knows, it definitely could have been exploited multiple times. Now, Apple has so far remained, remained pretty silent about the whole situation, um, including on this report from the Thompsons. And they've been, yeah, pretty silent on the whole thing, other than saying that they'll release a fix this week and that they've disabled group FaceTime for now. So, yeah, it complicates things further. It sounds like it could be an issue that's going to run for a while for Apple. Yeah, I think definitely. Um, I think it definitely will. The first lawsuit uh, related to this book has already been filed, of course, uh, straight out the gates. So uh, a Houston, Texas-based lawyer, naturally, uh, named Larry Williams II, is suing Apple, alleging that the FaceTime flow allowed an unknown person to listen in on a private conversation he had with a client with him claiming that he was eavesdropped on while taking sworn testimony during a client deposition. So he's reportedly seeking um, unspecified punitive damages on his claims of negligence, product liability, misrepresentation and warranty breach. Now, I'm not sure how you know you can go about proving that you are eavesdropped on by someone exploiting this flaw. I don't know. It's not clear yet if that's something you could actually prove. Uh, but obviously, Mr. Williams believes that there is a way to do that. And I think that we can be fairly sure that while this might be the first lawsuit we've seen in relation to this flow, it's very unlikely that it's going to be the last. Okay. Right. Let's go back to Candid because uh, he wanted to talk about a new piece of browser-based malware called Razy that's trying to steal crypto coins from their owners. Um, How are they doing, Candid? Yeah, so research colleagues from Kaspersky have published a detailed analysis of that Razy malware The malware attacks various browsers, so it's uh, Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, and also the Yandex browser. And it can either install a new malicious browser extension or inject malicious code into an already installed extension on the system. In order to succeed with this, of course, the malware disables the integrity check of the extensions by replacing a system DLL of the browser, and it also disables the automatic browser updates for the future. And once it's done, it then starts monitoring websites and injecting its own payload. And of course, it's nothing new that browser extensions can be used for malicious purposes. We've seen that before, and it's it's actually a topic that is close to my heart since I've written a white paper 10 years ago on Firefox extension malware. And coincidentally, Google announced this week that it has plans to increase the Chrome extension security. And the plan described in their manifest version three is to change the API that extensions can use to interact with websites. And this, of course, would make it more difficult for a malicious extension to change anything in the website uh, or in the website's content without noticing um, or raising any alarm bells. Unfortunately, this, of course, also means that many ad blockers Uh, which also use extensions, will have a problem and probably need to change the way they're trying to block advertisements. Okay, so this malware installs a malicious browser extension and what does it do with it then? Yeah, so the browser extension will add a small JavaScript to each website that the user visits. 
And this script then loads a remote payload script, which can then add various advertisements, it's adding banners, or even videos to websites, which will, of course, ultimately generate some ad revenue for the attackers. But the script also searches for any occurrences of Bitcoin or Ethereum wallet addresses in the website. And if a wallet is found, it will replace it with an address of the attacker. And the same happens with any QR code, which is uh, displayed or often displayed and linked to a wallet as well. The goal, of course, is that any crypto coin transaction that you make as a user will end up in the author's wallet. And for some of the larger crypto exchange platforms, uh, like, for example, Exmo, the malicious JavaScript will add a pop-up message after the user login. So, of course, with the usual social engineering stories, the attacker then tries to convince the user to, to, to submit some bitcoins to a specific address, pretending that there will be a high return on it, which, of course, is a lie, as we all know. Um, but it's not even stopping there. Um, the extension will also manipulate the search results for Google and Yandex. Whenever the user searches for Bitcoin-related keywords, some fake results will be displayed first and probably catch the attention of the user. So these websites either lead to phishing websites, trying to steal the passwords, or to some dubious crypto coin project pages. Um, so they made a lot of things. Even on Wikipedia, the malware will add a fake pop-up message asking for donation in Bitcoins, which unfortunately won't end up in Wikipedia's wallet. So overall, many different tricks and attempts to steal the user's crypto coins. And of course, it's very likely that some of them will be successful. Yeah, it's a multifaceted threat there, all right, you know, and uh, they're really uh, trying to increase their chances of success. Uh, Bridget, your next story is quite an unusual one, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, it's not one of our kind of more run-of-the-mill cybersecurity stories. It sounds a bit more like something that would be in a, a television show or a movie or something, rather than actually taking place in real life. So our story begins with an invitation to lunch with a citizen lab researcher, John Scott Railton, invited to a lunch meeting in New York by a man calling himself Michael Lambert. Now, citizen lab, for those who haven't heard of it, is an internet watchdog group that's based out of the University of Toronto. And it has carried out research into state-backed hackers and hacking in many countries throughout the world. It was involved in the exposure as well of the sophisticated iPhone software Pegasus a few years ago, which was found targeting the iPhone of a political dissident in the Middle East in 2016. And that spyware was developed by an Israeli-based exploit broker called NSO Group. And also in October last year, Citizen Lab also reported um, that this spyware was found on the phone of an associate of Jamal Khashoggi, who was a Saudi journalist who was um, killed in the Saudi Arabia consulate in Istanbul last year. Um, so that would be what Citizen Lab is kind of best known for. Um, but now back to this story, I suppose. Um, so Scott Railton agreed to meet this man, Lambert, but he was already a bit suspicious um, because another Citizen Lab employee had been grilled about the watchdog's work at another meeting in December by an individual who was then masquerading um, as a socially conscious investor. And so because of these suspicions, Scott Railton equipped himself with a Go GoPro camera and several recording devices before he went for the lunch, as well as tipping off two AP reporters who then also died in the restaurant as well. Okay, so this is uh, quite uh, an elaborate setup. What happened when he got there? Right, so when he got there, I mean, things were a bit kind of off from the get-go, um, according to Scott Railton. So firstly, 
um, Lambert placed a pen on the table and Scott Railton could clearly see a tiny camera poking out of it. Um, as well as that, Lambert didn't appear to be alone. Uh, reportedly at the beginning of the meal, a man sat uh, directly behind him, holding up his phone as if to take pictures um, of Scott Railton and of the whole setup, and then abruptly left, left the restaurant without eating anything. And later then, two or three uh, further men appeared at the bar and appeared to be monitoring what was going on. Um, reportedly as well, Lambert's conversation was quite stilted and he appeared to be working from cue cards, essentially. And then after some small talk, he steered the conversation to the work that Citizen Lab has done surrounding the NSO group, as well as asking Scott Railton a series of questions about the Holocaust, anti-Semitism and whether he grew up with any Jewish friends. He also reportedly asked whether there might not be a racist element to Citizen, Citizen Lab's interest in Israeli spyware. So then towards the end of the meal, um, Lambert was approached by the two AP reporters. But once this happened and once he realised he'd kind of been rumbled, um, he quickly left the restaurant and didn't divulge any further information about his uh, kind of true intentions there. Now, obviously, we can kind of make a laugh at this kind of story uh, because it does sound like something from a bad kind of spy caper movie. Do you know the person who thinks they're the spy is actually also being spied upon? Um, but it is pretty clear that Lambert, whoever he was, was attempting to elicit information to allow him or whoever he was working for to blacken the reputation of Citizen Lab and its work. Um, and obviously, you know, that's not acceptable and no one should obviously be targeted like Scott Railton was for simply doing their job. Um, these actions have been strongly criticised by Citizen Lab itself. Um, but those responsible for the attempted sting is still unknown. Um, I mean, despite the interest shown in the NSO group, um, they themselves have denied any responsibility for these things. And the AP, which ran a quite a lengthy article about this activity, said that it too could find no evidence to link the activity to the NSO group either. So for now, anyway, the identity of this kind of a uh, bumbling spy remains a mystery. Mm. Yeah, what I want to know is, did Lambert pay for his lunch before he, he ran out or, or was Scott Railton left with the bill? Okay, we have time for one more item. Um, we've talked a lot about business email compromise attacks before. Uh, now they're back with yet another trick and Candid, I think, has the details on this one. Yes, it's an interesting one. I mean, the business email compromise or BC emails are quite common these days, right? The FBI estimates around $3 billion US dollar worth of loss uh, per year. Most people know probably the classic trick of emails sent to the financial department, pretending to be from the CEO, trying to convince the employee to rush a transaction under some false pretext. My personal favorite are the ones where the attacker actually compromised an email account, uh, or in some cases, even the whole mail server and then intercepts the invoices which are sent out at the end of the month and simply replacing the target bank account in the PDF with their own. Because that, of course, is quite convincing and hard to detect for most organizations. But there has been a new variation recently. Um, apparently, some attackers literally made it onto the payroll. Um, so what they did was they used a compromised email account of an employee and then they convinced the payroll department that this employee recently changed banks and that they wanted to update the bank details. Of course, the new account details where the salary and probably also the expenses are paid out is the one of the attacker. Um, so in the end, he might get some money. And depending on the country and the banks involved, it doesn't matter if the account is actually under a different name and the transaction might still succeed. So of course, for some companies, 
specifically kind of the mid-range ones and smaller ones, some of those changes can even be made in a self-service portal by the employee themselves. So probably yet another good reason to protect your corporate account. And I guess the whole story is just another example that wherever there is money involved, attackers will try to steal it. And that's regardless of if we talk about invoices, expenses being paid, subscription services, or even internal SAP systems. Everywhere where money is involved, someone will try and steal it. So probably to note here, if you don't receive your paycheck at the end of this month, it's worth checking if the money is still sent to the correct account. Yeah, definitely a nasty shock there for some people. Um, That's all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. Uh, If you've been enjoying our podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on all future episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at ThreatIntel or Medium.com at um, Medium.com forward slash Threat hyphen Intel. If you'd like to read our latest research, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again next week when we'll be once again looking at what's going on in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.